Amen. Thank you, Anya. Appreciate that. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 8. If you would uh, join me in turning there in your Bibles, Mark chapter 8 this morning. We spent some time uh, last week uh, looking at this issue of unbelief and what, what does that look like? What does unbelief look like and how does it affect uh, the lives of, of particular individuals? And one of the things that Jesus pointed out was to beware of this leaven. And he, he mentioned some specific aspects of that. Uh, but we're going to be in Mark 8, verse 14. And um, we're going to start back kind of in some of the verses that we covered last week together. Um, remember, this, this took place when uh, this took place immediately after the Pharisees had began questioning Jesus, asking for a sign from heaven and tempting him. And uh, we're, we're going to pick it up. Jesus leaves. He doesn't give him a sign. He just leaves. And uh, we're going to pick that up in verse 14 now. Uh, as they have, have left, they're, they're uh, on the ship. They're on the boat. And uh, they, they have departed to the other side. So verse 14, Mark 8, verse 14 begins by saying, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. They reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye, because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand? Have ye your heart yet hardened? Having eyes, see ye not. Having ears, hear ye not. And do you not remember? When I break the five loaves among five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They say unto him, Twelve. And when the seven among four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said, Seven. And he said unto them, How is it that ye do not understand? Verse 22 now, we're going to continue reading. It says, And he came to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, and put his hand upon him, he asked him, if he saw aught, and he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any in the town. Lord, bless the reading of his word. This morning, we are going to look at this dangers of unbelief. And so really this is the second part of the message that, that we began last week together. You know, unbelief comes in, in many uh, different forms, but at, at the heart of it, uh, unbelief, we, we could say, is, is at, at its very root a, a failure to, to truly see, to have eyes that have been opened by God. And, and those who, who do not believe do not have the spiritual eyes to understand and we see it time and time again. You know, if you think about uh, unbelievers that you know, um, or, or maybe unbelievers in the world at large, uh, there are certain types of unbelievers. There are some who are militant, right? They are anti-God, and they are going to let you know about it. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, a, a professor that I had before, and uh, he had posted on his wall, uh, on his office door, the Ten Commandments of Evolution. 
And um, it was a direct attack against Christianity. And uh, he had right on display his God who was in, its, in uh, Jesus' place right there for all to see. And, and so um, that is a, a, uh, a militant unbeliever, right? Somebody who is going to tell you right from the start, you're wrong. You're wrong. What you believe about God is a lie. The Bible is not true. And, and they will say that over and over again. That is a militant unbeliever, but that's not the only form of unbelief. Or there, there are a lot of people who, who may be, be gathering or, or watching an online stream this morning around the world, this Sunday morning, who claim the name of Christ and yet are still unbelievers. Or they, they may not believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior. They may, may not believe that, that there is a, a literal hell which we were all destined to go to were it not for the blood of Jesus Christ being shed and that salvation is fully and freely available through Jesus Christ. They may not believe that. And as such, they are unbelievers, right? There may be some people who just seem really, really nice. You know, my professor, he wasn't really that nice of a guy. Right? He, 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 he wasn't somebody I ever really wanted to hang out with. Uh, he was kind of cranky. Right? But you know, there are nice people who, who just seem really nice, and maybe they're kind of fun to be around, and you may even enjoy their company, and they're still unbelievers. There are, are people who seem kind, and they are unbelievers. Uh, that, that is certainly true. There are people who, who, who kind of name the name of Christ, even, who will speak about Jesus, and yet they don't look to him as the Savior. There, there are some who just are, seem really nice, and they say, well, I think, think everybody ought to just get to heaven. Wouldn't that be nice? Sure, that would be nice, right? But it wouldn't be just. And, and so we, we have to recognize that, that our God is a holy God, and that the way of heaven comes by believing in his son, Jesus, who died on the cross for the sins of the world. You see, those nice people who think that all the roads lead to heaven and don't have a biblical view of salvation, they're no closer to God than that militant atheist. Yet, yet sometimes we think they're okay. And I, and I think sometimes the reason we want to think they're okay is because they're family members like our nice grandmother who doesn't know the Lord. She always bakes me cookies. She's no closer to God than that militant atheist. And, and that ought to cause us to pause. You see, this passage that we read this morning, there is one theme that, that comes up over and over again, and, and that is this inability to see. The, this inability to clearly see what's going on, and, and it happens time and time again. You see, those who d didn't believe, they, they didn't believe because of their blindness. And and if we understand that, that, that at its very heart, there has to be a true belief, a true faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, then anything that is other than that is dangerous teaching. And we went some, over some of these aspects last week together, but we're just going to take a moment and, and kind of remember some of these parts. Remember in verse 14 here, the disciples are afraid because they, they forgot to bring bread, so they don't have anything to eat in the boat. Right, but 
Jesus then speaks in verse 15. He charges saying, take heed, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, that leaven was this term used to, to describe yeast in a little piece of dough, and you put it in the next ball of dough, and it, it just spreads out. It takes over. It, it continues to infest it. And leaven is a term often used for sin, but, but the idea here is that there is teaching, there is false teaching by unbelievers that leads to further unbelief, and it just spreads and it grows. And, and Jesus mentions two, two places here in particular. He talks about the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders, right? There are religious people who will teach things that will lead people straight to hell. That's the warning here. There are religious people who will teach things that will lead people straight to hell. You, the, the Sadducees were mentioned in a, in a parallel passage to this account in Matthew. The, the Sadducees were not nearly as religious as the Pharisees. They were kind of spiritual people. And there are teachings that seem spiritual in nature that will lead people straight to hell because it's taught by people who are spiritually blind. And then here's the leaven of Herod. There, there are those who were followers of this group named after Herod. These were political people. There is teaching in politics that will lead people straight to hell. And Jesus is warning of all three here. You see, when teaching is not based on true understanding of faith, when it's not based on belief, when it's based on a lie, it can spread and it can take hold. It's a big term today in politics that people are mentioning. They call it Christian nationalism. Right? The idea that, that people are worshiping a political leader or or a political party more so than God, I'm not sure to what degree it's true versus just unbelievers who were involved in politics as they've always been, many of whom still claim the name of Christ uh, because culturally that's been what they've always done. I don't know that it's really that big of a change from what it has been before. But if nothing else, this time gives us pause to at least highlight the danger. Politics can't be our God. There is no politician who can take the place of our Savior. That God is on the throne regardless of which party is ruling the country at the moment. You see, that is the reality of understanding that politics and politicians can teach things that lead people straight to hell. Beware of this leaven whether it's from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or from Herod, the religious, the spiritual, or the political, it doesn't matter which one. All of it happens, why? Because of blindness, spiritual blindness. The same root problem of, of blindness, it has to do with just the simple idea that they are blind to the truth of the gospel. And any of those groups can have it. Verse 17, we see once again Jesus is saying to them, Perceive ye not yet. Right? Can't you see? Right in the middle of verse 17. Perceive ye not yet. Aren't you able to see this? Verse 18, having eyes, see ye not. What's he saying? You are blind. You are blind. 
And he's referring here even to the disciples. There are different levels of spiritual blindness here. These disciples are believers, but they're still not understanding fully what's going on. Who's blinding? Who's doing the blinding here? Well, Scripture answers that for us. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine in unto them. So who has blinded them? God. But not capital G God, little g God. The God of this world, that's Satan. Satan has blinded them, right? He is the one who has caused this spiritual blindness. And even among the disciples, they don't see fully yet. They don't understand fully yet. There is blindness going on in their account. And Jesus is calling them out on it. You know, as you think about this, they have just seen how blind the Pharisees are. Jesus is warning them about the Pharisees. He is warning them about the Sadducees. He's warning them about Herod. And immediately they're, they're concerned about not bringing bread. And uh, it's, it's almost as though he transitions and says, you know, I said that they're bad, but don't think you're all right either. Right? You've got problems too. And, and he calls out their blindness as well, their spiritual blindness, their blind spots that, that of, of what's going on. You know, it's, it's not much further, and you can look ahead right here in Mark 8 where we're going to see uh, one of, of Peter's examples of, of a terrible blind spot, Mark 8, look ahead to verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Think Peter had some spiritual blindness going on? Of course he did. Right, he still had spiritual blindness going on. So we, we come to this passage, and, and remember, we, we just went through the, this explanation. Pharisees, they're blind. The Sadducees, they're blind. This group who follows Herod, they're, they're blind. Even the disciples are demonstrating some spiritual blindness. Right? But there, there are some who are like the disciples, who have kind of this partial sight, but not complete. Let, let's look ahead. Let's get, get past this to verse 22 now, and, and let's get to this account, right? Blindness, blindness, blindness over again. And so what does Mark bring up next? The account of a blind man, verse 22. He cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town, and when he had spit on his eyes and put his hand upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After he put his hands upon his eyes and made him look up, he was restored and he saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. So Jesus here has a blind man before him, and we have a, a healing that takes place, but it actually takes place in two places. Right? They, they bring this, this blind man to Jesus. He has faith. He wants to, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be healed. That's, that's the idea. Verse 22, he besought him to touch him. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He, he said, no, you're not getting my garment. Verse 23, he took him by the hand. 
right? He takes them out of the town. Let's get around from, away from everybody. We don't need everybody here. For, let's go out of the town. And he does something that, that to us just sounds gross, right? He spits on his eyes. And so uh, imagine it this way. Uh, he, he basically is, is spitting. He takes some of that saliva and he puts it in his eyes. Uh, we, we, we think of spitting on people today. We, we think of, you know, kind of a bad thing, right? That's the way that you show disrespect toward someone. You spit in their face. Or, uh, that connotation would not have been there uh, at this time in that day. That, that would have been just Jesus uh, doing something for this man to, to heal him. Right? He, he, he has the spit. He places it in his eyes. He puts his hand on him. And he asks him, do you see? Well, this is the blind man's response. He looks up and I see men as trees walking. I'd never really taken much note of that phrase before, but uh, many of you remember Dr. Fant, who was here with us. Uh, He was a a church consultant. He was in about two and a half years ago now at the church. And uh, about, I don't know, eight months ago, something like that, uh, Dr. Fant was working out with some resistance bands, and the plastic on the end of the resistance band broke, and that piece of plastic sprung back, hitting him directly in the eye. And uh, he, he lost sight. And since then, he's had two, three, four operations. I'm not sure how many. And uh, many of you along the way have, have prayed at different times as we brought that up in prayer meeting for, for his upcoming surgeries and operations. He had the last one recently, but one of the things that, that uh, Dr. Fan has said time and time again in describing what it's like is he's hearkened back to this verse, and he says, I see men as trees walking. And, and so uh, imagine that idea. If you were there and you were looking out and you were thinking of a group of people, and you don't actually see the details of the people, right? You, you just see kind of big shadows in the distance, and, and they're moving, right? So, so, so men look, look like just these big old shadow figures walking around. And, and that's what's being described here. This blind man does not have complete sight yet, but he can see more. Now, likely, he, he probably was someone who had, had sight earlier in life. Right? Because he can describe these things. Yeah, it looks like a tree. He probably was able to see a tree at a previous time, and then he became blind at some point in his life. Now, whether that was a childhood illness or whatever. Blindness is not something that, that we see quite as regularly today. But in Jesus' day, it was a more common occurrence because there were different diseases and different infections and things that, that could cause you to lose your sight much more regularly and more easily even than it happens today. So, so he, this blind man describes his partial sight. I see men as trees walking. And so then Jesus takes the next step. Right? He puts his hand upon his eyes. He, he has him look up, and he's restored, and he sees everything clearly. Right? Then his vision becomes 20-20. He, he can see everything clearly once again. And so, so Jesus has restored his sight. Now, it's kind of unusual to have a two-part miracle. Right? Uh, okay, partial sight, total sight. What, what's the reason for that? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us. Uh, some have speculated that 
perhaps in the context of what we just read, that this idea of being totally blind, spiritually blind, has to do with those who were the Pharisees, those who were the Sadducees, those who were the followers of Herod, who had no understanding at all. And, and then you had those who believed, those who, who had partial sight but didn't fully understand, like the disciples. Right? They didn't yet understand the coming cross of crucifixion, where Jesus would die for the sins of the world. And, and we know that because right after this, Peter makes it very clear that he doesn't understand that yet. Right? And so Jesus he even is, is speaking to having, ear, having eyes, see ye not? Right? Perceive ye not? You, you don't understand yet? And, and so perhaps this is a, 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 an illustration to, to hearken back to where the disciples are. Right? They, they, are men as tre- they see men as trees walking. They, they understand salvation. They've trusted in Jesus as, as the, their Savior, but they don't yet fully have the few, full view of the picture. And, and so Jesus, who is talking to his disciples and, and warning them about the blind people, but he's saying here, well, how about you? Right? Your, your vision isn't that great either. Be careful. Don't get proud. And, and that's, that's the reality, I, I think, that believers need to, to caution themselves on. Have you ever met a, a person who was a believer, and yet they were incredibly spiritually proud? They, they had all the answers. They, they could tell you what it was, and, and if your answer wasn't their answer, they would let you know about it. Right? They, there was no about, doubt about it. They were going to tell you what they thought about it. And if your application of biblical truth in some area of life didn't match their application of biblical truth in some area of life perfectly, whether it was what you did in your household or otherwise, they were going to let you know. Because it wasn't so much about following God's will anymore. It was following their perfect understanding of God's will that somehow he had blessed them with. Be careful. Disciples may have thought at this time, okay, we're starting to get this down a little bit. We've, we've been out. Jesus has sent us out. We, we've healed people. We, we've preached, preached the word about this Jesus as the Messiah. We have told people the, the truth about who he is. And it takes something as silly and as simple as, as disciples being concerned about how much bread they brought on the boat for Jesus to point out how blind they still were. We've all got blind spots. We all have areas of blindness. And and so when we step forward in in walking with our Savior, we must do so in humility. Peter could spend all of this time with Jesus and still be so spiritually blind as to rebuke him just a few verses later from here. Certainly, we have blind spots major blind spots, to be cautioned with our own vision. But we also need to remember just the fact that there are people all around who have been blinded by Satan. And we have a responsibility to lovingly and carefully continue to declare the truth of the word of God to them. I was listening to a a message on this passage um, earlier, and pastor used an illustration uh, by someone, a name you may have heard, 
Rosaria Butterfield. You may have heard her name before. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. And uh, she is someone who, is spir- who was spiritually blind. And a great change happened in her life. And, and I want to actually take a moment and read her account. I want to read her testimony to you so that you can hear the very words of, of what she experienced and what went through her mind during this process where we, she went from spiritual blindness to seeing the true light of Jesus Christ. She said, wrote the following, The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark. To end it rather than deepen it. Stupid. Pointless. Menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breek shampoo commercial model. As a professor of English and women's studies, on the track to becoming a tenured radical, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion. Fervent for the world views of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin, I strove to stand with the I strove to stand with the disempowered. I valued morality, and I probably could have stomached Jesus and his band of warriors if it weren't for how other cultural forces buttress the Christian right. Pat Robertson's quip from the 1992 Republican National Convention pushed me over the edge. Feminism, he sneered, encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. Indeed, the surround sound of Christian dogma Co-mingling with Republican politics demanded my attention. After my tenure book was published, I used my post to advance the understandable allegiances of a a leftist lesbian professor. My life was happy, meaningful, and full. My partner and I shared many vital interests. AIDS activism, children's health and literacy, golden retriever rescue, our Unitarian Universalist Church, to name a few. Even if you believe the ghost stories promulgated by Robertson and his ilk, it was hard to argue that my partner and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers. The GLBT community values hospitality and applies it with skill, sacrifice, and integrity. I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against queers like me. To do this, I would need to read the one book that had, in my estimation, gotten so many people off track, the Bible. While on the lookout for some Bible scholar to aid me in my research, I launched my first attack on the unholy trinity of Jesus, Republican politics, and patriarchy in the form of an article in the local newspaper about promise keepers. It was 1997. 
The article generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for the hate mail and one for fan mail. But one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you are right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond to it, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the recycling bin and put it back on my desk, where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded a response. As a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical materialist worldview, but Christianity is a supernatural worldview. Ken's letter punctured the integrity of my research project without him knowing it. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches that Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was clear as blue sky. That's not what Ken did. He did not mock me. He engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. Something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. I started reading the Bible. I read the way a glutton devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations. At a dinner gathering my partner and I were hosting, my transgendered friend Jay cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine. This Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria, she warned. With tremors, I whispered, Jay, what if it's true? What if Jesus is real and risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? Jay exhaled deeply. Rosaria, she said, I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I prayed that God would heal me, but he didn't. If you want, I will pray for you. I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church, conspicuous with my butch haircut. I reminded myself that I came to meet God, not fit in. The image that came in like waves of me and everyone else I loved suffering in hell vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. I fought with everything I had. 
I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the costs, and I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. But God's promises rolled in like sets of waves into my world. One Lord's Day, Ken preached on John 7, 17, If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them. I expected that in all areas of life, understanding came before obedience. And I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not one being judged. But the verse promised understanding after obedience. I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view? Or did I just want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understand. I prayed long into the unfolding of day. When I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. But when I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus. Open-handed and naked in this war of worldviews, Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved. But the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if, that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first and passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community. And today, in the shelter of a covenant family, where one calls me wife and many call me mother, I have not forgotten the blood Jesus surrendered for this life. And my former life lurks in the edges of my heart, shiny and still like a knife. See, this is a testimony of someone who was spiritually blind. They had been blinded by the God of this world. Slowly and steadily, the power of the word of God changed their heart and mind. Their eyes were open, and they believed. It's hard to imagine the loss that someone would suffer, whether it be personal relationships or job opportunities. You're not the chair of the Women's Studies Department anymore at Syracuse University if you're a born-again Christian. It just doesn't happen. And yet this account of Rosaria Butterfield is an account of someone who counted the costs and believed. Unbelief has a cost. The price is high, and you can see in this account Rosaria understood 
going to hell and watching her friends go to hell was nothing that she desired, but that the God of heaven was just and holy, but also merciful, and that she could be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. See, unbelief is dangerous. There are many who are clinging to that path, who are encouraging one another in that way. There are some who have deceived themselves thinking that they're okay. Some who have been in pews right here at Grace Baptist Church who think that they're fine. But simply not the case. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Father and our God, we do pray that you would open eyes. Father, take away the spiritual blindness that's been brought about by the God of this world. Father, we thank you for the testimony that we've heard. Father, we thank you that you are powerful, that you can change lives. Father, that you can provide sight to the blind. Lord, we pray for those listening right now. Maybe in this moment you would say, my life has been one of unbelief. I want to know for sure that I'll go to heaven when I die. I want to have a personal relationship with this just, holy, and merciful God. I believe. If that's you and, and you would say that right now, would you just cry out to God and, and tell him that you believe? Tell him that you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ, that his death on the cross was, was to pay the penalty for your sin. Heavenly Father, we, we pray for those who are, are praying right now. Pray that you would work in their lives and hearts, that you would continue to draw them to yourself. We pray, Lord, that souls would be saved. Father, for those of us who know you, far too often we think we've got it all together. When we are suffering in part from partial blindness, Lord, by the power of your word, change our minds, change our hearts, conform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, we will never be perfect in this life. We will never be perfect on this world. Father, would you just point out our blindness? Father, where we're in sin, may we confess it and forsake it. To walk ever more and more closer with you. Father, we are grateful for the salvation that's available through Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.